0: Welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. We're up to our 15th podcast, and this episode features PIP editor Robin Rosenfeld in conversation with Kirsten Bradley of Milkwood Permaculture. In the podcast, Kirsten talks in depth about her new book, Milkwood Real Skills for Down to Earth Living, her passion for tomatoes, as well as her family's journey to David Holmgren's Maliadora property and their life there. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Pit Permaculture Podcast. Today I'm talking with Kirsten Bradley, who together with partner Nick Ritter, they are Milkwood Permaculture. Now for those of you who haven't heard of them, they're educators of permaculture, they run courses in permaculture, write blogs, and have just brought out their first book, Milkwood, Real Skills for Down-to-Earth Living. So thanks Kirsten for having a chat today. Hi, Rowan. Thank you. And not to mention, you're also busy running a farm, making cheese, milking goats, preserving, fermenting and all those other wonderful things. Yep, which,
2: all that fun stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, and which is a lot of what is in your new book, which has just come out, which is a really stunning book. If you haven't seen it, you need to get your hands on it. Not only is it full of great information, but beautiful photography and nice design. Very nice indeed. So you're happy with it? I'm that? glad you like it. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 we are. It's It's been a, a labour of love, like all books are, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's lovely to have it finally out in the world and be talking yeah, about it rather than be, you know, inside your head. <laughs>
1: yeah, and in your computer. So yeah. what inspired you to write the book? Well, first, uh, so, we... do you want to tell us a bit about what the book is and what's in it? Sure. Okay. So
2: it's our first book. It's hopefully the first of a series. It's called Milkwood and um, it's got five chapters in it. So it's sort of a bit like five books in one. It's um, got five big chapters drilling down into subjects that we hope can get people inspired to live a handmade, homemade life, mm-hmm. even in just a certain corner of their life. The uh, the chapters are the tomato mushroom growing, natural beekeeping, seaweed and wild food
1: and oh, yeah. we That's, uh very on.
2: yep oh no no here
1: you go <laughs> I was just gonna say I found that really interesting that you just chose a few topics rather than like a lot of books kind of like a bit of everything and trying to tell everyone everything but yeah I thought what why did you decide to just focus on those well things?
2: I mean, yeah, we we, we didn't want to write a here's a little bit of everything book. I mean, some of those books are fantastic and I love them. Yeah. Um, But I I sort of felt like, you know, especially as we're moving into a world where books are more products than books a lot of the time, we really wanted to make something meaty and useful and actually worth doing and worth buying and worth producing. So we decided to pick five of our favourite things and start with them Mm. and really, yeah like I said, drill down into these topics to hopefully by the time you finish the tomato chapter you are ready to give tomato Mm. growing a good shot and you've got everything you need to know to have a a really good go at it.
0: Mm.
2: Or there's also, I mean, the things like natural beekeeping, you you can't read 60 pages on natural beekeeping and be ready to um, keep bees. There's, Mm. There's some things that takes a lot more thought and chatting and researching and looking and learning. Uh, but we wanted with chapters like that to really inspire people to, um, that you know, the bees are so amazing and so crucial to our ecosystems that, you know, that they're really worth understanding whether you intend to keep them or not. And like anything, if a subject's presented to you in the right way, it's really, really fascinating. And you mm. end up being fascinated by things that you thought you had no interest in.
1: So yeah.
2: a combination of those two factors that we were trying to do.
1: Yeah, mm. and I think with the beekeeping, it's, it's enough of a taster to understand perhaps what's involved and then know whether or not you want to pursue it more and, you know, it's that inspiration and that kickoff that you then jump into yeah. finding yeah. and home. I
2: I've always loved the sorts of books that you know you pick up because you're at a friend's house and you're sitting there and there's a book about sheep and so you pick up the book about sheep and if it's you know if it's beautiful writing before you know it you're in love with sheep
1: mm,
2: and yeah. uh, I've always loved that the the way that you know skills and new subjects can come at you from unexpected places and before you know it you're you're really keen on sheep not necessarily having them but you you know you're invested with them as a species. Yeah. And, yeah, we sort of wanted to do that with the book and, you know, we've got I've got a very long list of, of chapters for the next book and the next okay, book okay. and, we yeah, we'd like to do that every few years is, um, yeah, produce the, the next edition.
1: Beautiful. Well, it's something to look forward to. But we'll see how we go. So what mm-hmm. inspired you to make, make a book? Like you've been writing a blog for a long time and teaching courses and, yeah, what inspired you to kind of put it all onto paper?
2: Yeah, um, it was... It was partly being approached by a publisher, which was okay. um, an embarrassingly long time ago now. I think it was five or six years ago that we were approached, yeah. <laughs> and um, and like anyone who who blogs or loves sharing the sort of information, we're like, wow, a book really? Us? That sounds great. Um, but that was just as we were leaving our family farm in Mudgee, uh, mm. so we had to, yeah, we signed on the line, got ourselves a book contract, and then put the whole thing on hold for six months, which turned into twelve months, which turned into you know, two years, mm. um, and it was only just as we moved down to Victoria that um, life was sort of, yeah, had a li- little few pockets of quiet in it that I was like, okay, we're going to write the book now, I'm yeah. ready. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a slow burner for a while um, yeah. because we did want to do it justice, and I have no idea how people pump out books. It is such a massive undertaking. Mm. I you know it's it's taken me a while to get our, my head around how to how to approach it as well so mm. this well, is how you've got mouth. it with
1: this one the other ones should be a little bit easier to
2: yeah hopefully that's the plan <laughs> pump <laughs> we'll them <see>.
1: out <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about that journey so you were living on your on the family farm with the and you were starting to you built your tiny house there and ran courses and were doing all that there then you were renting for a while and now you've moved down to Meliadora with David Holmgren and Sue Dennett. So can mm. you tell us what that, how that process has been for you and what you've learned along the way and how that's uh, influenced what you've been doing as well?
2: Yeah, it's been a pretty wild 10 years in that regard. Yeah. Like we, we moved from Melbourne up to Mudgee in central New South Wales just over 10 years ago. Uh, we had no plans on, on doing any sort of education or anything. We were just going to um, live simply and grow food. Uh, up to Nick's family farm, and um, and yeah, we just we 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 say that we got sideswiped by permaculture yeah. because we we did both did a, a permaculture design course before we moved to the farm because we thought that's what you do when you move to a farm you do mm. a permaculture course, but we just got really involved and excited by. Um, yeah by the potential of regenerative agriculture and organic agriculture we were living in an area where there was a lot of farmers who were keen to convert across to organic from conventional farming but you know didn't have the the knowledge and mechanisms to do so and so we got really excited about the idea of bringing in experts and holding mm. courses in our wool shed and then everyone could learn and we could learn and we were building a farm so yeah, so it sort of tumbled into this sort of educational space while we were also making a farm and starting a market garden and building natural buildings and mm. all these things and it sort of folded back into itself in lots of different ways and that was an amazing time and a huge amount of work and um, then the family farm um, got sold and Nick's parents decided to move on which mm. is what happens on family farms and so we ended up renting south of Sydney on the coast where, where I'm from, uh, which was great to reconnect with, with the ocean and seaweed and all that fun stuff. Mm. But um, we, were, we weren't we were sure of our next move, so we were focusing on um, education in Sydney and building rooftop gardens in Sydney and rental gardens where we were ripping up the lawn and growing yeah. lots of veggies. And, um, and then, yeah, we were lucky enough two years ago to uh, be asked by David Holmgren and Sue Dennett to come down and inhabit their second building that's on Meliodora, which is a two-acre beautiful permaculture property that's been established for 35 years.
1: Mm. And, and for those um, that don't know, David Holmgren's the co-originator of permaculture. So yes, it yes. really is. Yes, he is, the and it's probably home base of permaculture, I guess. <laughs> it's probably
2: the oldest example of a
1: yeah permaculture homestead yeah. or farm that um,
2: that's still in existence that we've all got. Um, and it's, it's an amazing place. Mm. And so, yeah, we just, I mean, we've got a nine-year-old boy. We decided to hot-foot it down here and and let him, you know, thrive and grow up amongst this sort of environment. And, yeah, we have an arrangement where we, we trade the house that we're in for running the uh, the veggie gardens and helping with the orchards here. And, it's yeah, it's a beautiful little community that's here. So mm. we're really enjoying it. Although it's yeah, it's a whole a whole new world of um, things to do on top of all the other things we do. It's yeah. so interesting getting the balance right sometimes.
1: Mm. Yeah. So what what is that? In, what are your days involved when you're on the farm? There, what, um, what sort of things yeah. are you having to fit in amongst everything else you're doing? <laughs> <laughs>
2: the days days here are pretty varied, and it does really help having uh, we've got three households here on the farm now. So we've got Dave and Sue. Um, Nick, I and Asher, and Brenna Quinlan, who's a uh, permaculture illustrator and illustrated our book and also yep. illustrated um, Dave's latest book, Retro mm. Suburbia.
1: Beautiful um, illustration.
2: Which is, yeah, huge and amazing and extensive. Um, yep. So she's in another little building here. So we've sort of got three groups of, of adults sharing tasks and chores and growing. So it's great like that. But um, a typical day or today... Um, involved, uh, milking the goats first thing, uh, yeah. dealing with the chickens coming back, doing a bit of desk work today, in our very cozy little house, got the fire on here. Nice. Um, this afternoon I'll be out in the garden, um, weeding and prepping the tomato beds. Uh, and then later on we'll be, you know, going down the gully to get the goats back in. I took them out this morning down to a, a paddock down the gully. Okay bringing them back in, collecting eggs, sorting out the chickens, um, watering all the seedlings, doing a bit busy. more weeding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, then making, making dinner and snuggling down and doing it all again tomorrow. So yeah. some days look like that and some days look very different. But Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then you're off traipsing around promoting the book and treating courses around. and all sorts yeah. of things.
2: Well, we, we're teaching a lot of courses down here now. We teach them up at the, the little par- primary school, which is just up the road from us. So that's that's been really great to bring, um, yeah, to bring the, the education stuff back home so we yeah. can, you know, we can make food, us. we can, you know, share food from Meliodora at the courses. It's, yeah, it's it's a nice little balance.
1: And how has um, living at Meliodora influenced the book writing? Did you, was some of it, did you learn more as you'd moved in there? and Feel more connected um, to it, or have you sort of already had? Yeah. Information?
2: Well, this this first book was was you know sort of conceived and had its had its roots before we we moved here. It was once we we got here to the farm that I did the actual the actual writing. Um, probably the chapter that's been most influenced by here is the wild food chapter because mm. um, we're down in Victoria. The the gullies here are full of amazing feral fruit and. You know, hawthorns and all sorts of crazy weeds, which um, which are environmental weeds from one perspective, or an incredible local resources from another perspective. Mm. Um, so it's been wonderful to interact with a more southern and a colder climate um, world of seasons and all the all the you know the different wild foods that go with those seasons. That's been amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean it's every new place that you live and anyone who you know gardens or keeps animals would know this one all too well every new place you live it's it's like resetting there's a whole lot of things that are the same but you know the date that you plant planting tomatoes is completely different yeah. and you know what the local resources and the soils are is quite often completely different so you you have to rework your thinking around a whole lot of things which can be really good because you know you don't get into a rut of like oh we always do it like this you have to listen and learn and ask your locals and, yeah, yeah. Um, be onto it to figure out how to grow in a new
1: place. So, yeah, I, I like that challenge. It's good. Mm. Yeah, and you've definitely got a great place there to practice and mm. you've got lots of room to grow things and all those established trees that are already there as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's been really interesting actually. I've learnt, learnt a lot about trees and orcharding and Dave Hongren is a, a complete, you know, timber nut he loves his 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 different um forestry trees so we've been learning a lot about that and the gully that's just down um the hill from meliodora has been planted with a really diverse range of of trees both for the short term and you know the very very long term it's called Mm. the the spring spring creek community forest everyone calls it beautiful it's got a stand of bunya pines and it's got cricket willows and it's got you know poplars and elms and turkey tail mushrooms everywhere and a really, yeah, a really interesting novel ecosystem that's being set up that will, um, you know, benefits us now but will hopefully benefit future generations when they come to
1: Mm. need timber or the other, you know, the other yields and gifts that the trees here give. So, yeah. Mm. And the beautiful thing about that is that you don't actually have to own that piece of land, do you, to be able to start planting and Um, to give back to... Future generations, and yeah, you
2: can yeah. just
1: start planting in a because it, from what I understand, it was just a bit of a washed out gully, wasn't it? And over the years, it they was, planted it, and, it
2: was, yeah, it's had a lot of blackberries in it. So, and you know, another of Dave Hongren's interests is, um, is, you know, bushfire mitigation and preparing properties um, to be fireproof or, mm. or you know, fire resistant. So doing a whole lot of work down that gully, which is in our fire sector, it's where the main fires would come from in yes. this landscape, has been a really great way of, you know, that that helps Meliodora, it helps all our neighbours. Um, it's allowed us to regenerate and um, and plant a whole lot of new plants in there. Um, the goats help keep the blackberries down. It's, mm. you know, it, it is an evolving little landscape. that's evolving for the better any way you look at it. But has all these community and you know, Meliodora outcomes in the process. So, I mean, Mm. they've been doing it for, you know, 20, over 20 years down that galley, so it's been lovely to slot into that process and
1: and watch the processes
2: at at play. Mm. It's been really special.
1: Yeah. Now, speaking of tomatoes before, so um, in the issue of PIP, issue 12 that's just coming out, you wrote an article about tomatoes, which was from your book, so, uh, yes. how you obviously have quite a passion, passionate relationship with tomatoes, can I say. <laughs> um, and proud. Yeah. So you seem. I mean, yeah. Tell. I mean, you seem to have tomatoes for a long, a long season, and you preserve them. And can you tell us a bit about how you learned about yeah. tomatoes? And we,
2: we yes, we do love tomatoes. It's true. <laughs> they're a a hero crop you know what I mean like if you can if you can nail your cherry tomatoes and figure out how to grow them really well it gives people a lot of confidence and pride in Mm. a homegrown tomato there's something quite special about it Mm. and so we included that chapter in our book because you know if if you can cherry tomatoes growing really well which you know is generally reasonably easy to do yeah, sometimes that it's gives hard you not so much growing really well <laughs> yeah indeed indeed sometimes that gives you a whole lot of confidence to try a whole lot of other things so as a as a gateway uh we felt they were a really great vegetable to start with
1: mm, definitely yeah i think they're um, yeah. probably the most satisfying to grow as One a beginner the
2: most, yeah i mean a good capsicum whew,
1: yeah that's special
2: <laughs> and everybody gets into them you know there's not that many people though of course there's some most little kids like tomatoes that's mm-hmm. always pretty important um and yeah we we first learned about tomatoes from um amazing farmers Joyce Wilkie and Michael Plain oh, yeah. at yeah. Sun Farm which mm-hmm. is in um, Gundaroo uh near you
1: Robin. Not too far.
2: And, um, yeah, they're gun tomato growers and every, um, I'm not sure if they're still doing it now, but um, if Joyce is still doing it now, but every every spring they would raise a huge amount of organic tomato seedlings incredibly well and um, we used to run courses with them at their farm. So we were often there in the spring when there was like a huge amount of seedlings that had to be taken very special care of every day and had to have Mm. this and that done to them. And then they would have a, a fairly major tomato seedling sale at a certain point in the spring and you know everyone from far and wide would come and get these incredibly strong healthy tomato seedlings of ridiculously amazing varieties Mm. and they would also be planting them out and it was one of their one of their major crops in their greenhouses um and yeah i just up until then i was like yeah tomatoes they're one of those things but once i you know saw how much love went into these varieties and what an amazing variety there were of different tomato Mm. um yeah, different tomato types, um, just got really excited about it and learned from them a lot and planted a lot in our market garden up in Mudgee and then, yeah, just sort of continued continued on because they are a really adaptable vegetable. They're mm. fantastic for farms. They're fantastic for balconies. You know, you don't need too many tomato plants to, to get the joy that tomatoes bring. So Yeah,
1: mm. and you can they're just a good them to start in the pot too, which is good. Yeah. And also an the, the difference pot. between a home-grown tomato and a shop-bought tomato is remarkable. It's Once you've really grown tomatoes yourself, you don't yes. bother with the yes. others anymore, especially when they're not in season. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to tomato season. We were just up in Brizzy and there were tomatoes and now we're back down
1: south and there's oh, no tomatoes. No. I'm like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait, wait. <laughs> another month or two. Yeah. So, yeah, so you... As far as having the longest season possible with tomatoes, you've you've sort of got a variety that you choose that start from being quite early to late in the season, do you? Yeah, we we actually have a reasonably short season
2: this far south because Mm. the frosts here are so late. So, um, yeah, this morning I put all the tomato seedlings out into the sun for the day and then they go back onto the veranda <laughs> each nice just, in case the, the pesky frost yeah. gets them. So um, here where we are in, in central Victoria, we need to plant um, our tomatoes out when they are busting to go. So, they've you know, we, we cultivate them two months or more before they go into the ground.
1: Mm.
2: And um, by the time they go in, they are just, yeah, they, they are so grow. ready to start growing and flowering. It's not funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's also, I mean, you know, in some places where you have um, fruit fly problems, then, you know, you need to find techniques to grow tomatoes as early as possible before the fruit fly loading gets gets too mm. intense.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and there's, you know, there's smaller varieties like cherry, all the cherry tomatoes are generally better against fruit fly. And, mm you know, can be started quite early, so and they to tend to go a bit strategic.
1: On very late too, don't they? Often we're eating them in June, yeah, down here.
2: Oh, really? Wow, cool.
1: Yeah, they're yeah, just I mean, still it, hanging on the last <laughs> <time>. <laughs> We
2: we don't have any tomatoes hanging on till June. That doesn't happen here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're a little bit further north, but yeah. Again, we have frost too, so once they hit they go, but yeah and um, um
2: yeah I mean once there's, once when there's heaps, there's heaps, so you need to you need to have strategies there as well for what you're going to do with them all, other than just give them away
1: to your neighbors and make everyone very happy yeah, so tell us That's about of your fun. tomato preserving extravaganzas <laughs> mm.
2: we <laughs> we yeah we've um we have run quite a few um, public posada days over the years, which has been really really fun um. At home, we generally, you know, when there's lots of tomatoes, we'll do a big pick every day and I, I'm a big believer in just taking it one day at a time with tomatoes. Yeah, um, yeah um, some of the preserving techniques are are really great if you're if you're buying tomatoes, if you're getting a big box of beautiful sourcing tomatoes from a local farmer or mm. from your local fruit shop. Um, there's techniques that are more suited to dealing with, you know, five boxes at once than there yeah. are, you know, one basket each day. So we um we bore in the one basket each day, although that can go up to a box each day at peak tomato season
1: mm.
2: here, so um, yeah, we just take them one step at a time, um, some days we'll just dry them all, chop them up into halves or quarters, and dry them out in the sun if uh, the weather is up for that or in a dehydrator, if it's not, we dry a huge amount of tomatoes mm. or um, and then I mean, you there's put a lot of
1: oil and. Sometimes, or
2: sometimes we just store them dry and um, and then oil them. Yeah, add them to oil as, as we go in smaller yeah. batches. So, we've also started um, blitzing them a lot, making tomato powders, which are really, yeah. really fantastic and in how the how stews and that sort of thing. Oh, stews. Yeah. Um, yeah, stews or sprinkled on top of stuff instead of salt. Um, mm. Yeah so the tomato is a umami powerhouse so it's it does okay. all sorts of things to your your taste receptors but yeah and with a little bit of salt in that as well it really enhances it so yeah we use them a lot to make everything family friendly mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um for the for the rest of them we we mostly we've you know got a kitchen kitchen whiz, I'm not even sure what it's called, I've always just called it a kitchen whiz, um, where we, we take the tomatoes, we make sure they're washed and they just go into the kitchen whiz hole, they get blitzed, skin and seeds and all, and then those get poured into um, preserving jars. We've got a lot of old Vokola jars but you can use any jar. Pour them in there and then water bath them for 40 minutes or, or whatever, depending on, depending on the jars that you've got. And, yeah, just water bath preserves them. And then stick them on the shelf until until they're needed, and
0: mm. that seems to be
2: the the most um, mentally healthy way to deal yeah, with lots totally. of tomatoes in our house.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we do the same here, and I think just that just keeping it really simple like that means that it just happens. Whereas if you are gonna peel them all and treat you know, make it too yeah. the whole process too complex and you just put it off for another day and uh, they'll, they'll Yeah. Some roughing. people are
2: really great at that and some people boil them down and get it really thick. And I am all about all of that. I think that's all fantastic. But yeah, usually after a big hot day here mm. I can blitz some and boil them for a bit, but that's about all I've got in me at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah well it's like And I should note that we have we have really limited fridge space on this property we have cool cupboards and little bar fridges so yeah. if it's if it's hot weather you need to deal with it today we can't stick it in a big fridge and deal with it on the weekend so that's just the context that we're operating in
1: yeah and how many um plants you, would you say you have going over summer tomatoes uh, hmm. and is no, it enough to kind of keep, keep you in tomatoes for the year with fresh and passatas
2: yeah, yeah, we, we we grow enough for two households. Numbers, um, we paddocks. have about yeah, I'm Bed trying to size.
1: think.
2: We we grow a lot of cherries and we grow them in a in usually two different big blocks of of beds. Yeah. Um, we always run quite a few big beds of Roma tomatoes, which are determinate, so they um, they ripen over a shorter period, which is a blessing or a curse, depending on exactly when that period decides yeah. to be. <laughs> what else are you trying to do with your life? <laughs> Yeah, and then we have a lot of big truss tomatoes, so um, climbing tomatoes, the same as, as cherries but are, are really big ones, either ox hearts or red pears. Um, we've been growing a lot of green zebras just because they, they go really well and they don't get stung by fruit fly mm. down this way. Um, so you've yeah, got fruit fly that way, do you? Six big, six big beds of tomatoes. Yeah, fruit fly arrived here last summer mm. for the first time. Lucky Central Victoria, mm. and we're all waiting to see if it's gonna, you know, come, you know, with a with a vengeance, or whether it's just gonna dribble in here and there, some years and some years not.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's mm. okay. But anyway, so so six beds, six beds of tomatoes. Takes yeah, you. I
2: mean, you know, how long is a piece of string? How big's a yeah, bed?
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. Um, let me think. I would estimate that it's about. 20 square metres worth of bed space dedicated to mm-hmm. tomatoes, maybe.
1: And how? what's your recommended way of trellising them and keeping them tidy? Yeah. Because often that's the problem. Again, you put it, them in and you're really inspired and then yep. if you don't trellis them, you yep. just end up with a big It mess.
2: depends on your available technology. If you don't have much money or much time, um, I would recommend, um, uh, you know, like gridlock Fencing, uh, fencing that's in big squares, mm. and putting a star picket in at each end of the bed, and running that um, that big grid fencing down the middle of the bed. Do that before you plant your tomatoes, otherwise you'll squish all your tomatoes. Mm. And yeah, then just sort of like looping them through, letting them go up and looping them through. If you don't expect to have a lot of time, or you know you don't want to spend every day inspecting your tomatoes. Mm. Uh, We often do a lot of twining. So we have overhead beams and we run strings down and tie them to the actual tomato plant when they're young and then twine the tomatoes up the plants. That's really effective but, you know, you can't do that once every two weeks. You need to do that multiple times a week. So it depends how often Mm. you're in the garden. Um, Or, I mean, you know, you've also got determinate tomatoes that just scramble and don't really climb up anyway. And if you just plant them in really well mulched beds, they'll scramble around and do their
1: thing and you can just pick them that way yeah yeah like with all this stuff it just you do it to suit your style don't you yeah
0: yeah and there's
2: you know
1: if you if you google tomato trellising
2: techniques there is billions of ideas out there so yeah in our book we just put the ones that we use most and that we've seen other friends who are both you know commercial scale and backyard scale growers use most that worked year in year out and don't require too much you know fussing around to make it work
1: mm. yeah yeah so we yeah i think your chapter on tomatoes in the book's a really great introduction for people and it just it's got everything from you know seedlings to seed saving to preserving to growing to all those Yay, sorts tomatoes of things. so yeah it's great <laughs> and then the same with mushrooms and beekeeping and seaweed and wild food so yeah it's a great yeah. book so thanks robin and i'm looking forward to see what's going to be in the next one <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> <can have> something <laughs> to do with goats and cheese perhaps
2: oh uh, goats well there was a chicken chapter in this book that was fully um fully uh written but um yeah we ran out of space and a yeah. lovely lovely editor was like kirsten you've written too many words <laughs> So we had to choose something to drop, so chickens got booted, so um, chickens need to be in book too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, the, it's going to be quite traumatic actually. I've got such a big list of things that I'd love to mm. spend two months writing about mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, we'll see how we go. it's um, oh, beautiful. Mm, it's a great way to do to find it, some, I think. Yeah, got to find some time to sit down and write it. It was inspired actually, there's a, um, there's an old series of books called Foxfire which um, came out of a, an oral history book Project in in the uh, let me get the mountain range right the Appalachian mountains oh, yeah, in yeah. in the USA and um, it was it was a high school history project with high school students going out to the old timers in the hills and um, and recording what mm, they knew beautiful. and they they amassed so much information they started um, doing a, uh, a newsletter called the Foxfire newsletter and Foxfire is a type of glow in the dark fungus
0: mm, from wow. these
2: particular hills. And um, then they just realised they had, like, masses of material and all the kids were really, really into it. There was a teacher, you know, running it, obviously. Yeah. And they started writing the Foxfire books. And the Foxfire books are these delightfully random combinations of subjects. Like one Mm. will have corn shucking, coffin building, banjo playing, (laughs) ghost stories and planting by the moon. And that'll, you know, (laughs) there'll be those sorts of chapters smushed together. And we discovered them when when we started Milkwood. And I love them. There's about 12 of them, or 13 of the books. And the whole Foxfire organisation has just had a resurgence. Some young blood has come back in and sort of put it back together and now they're they're an active live um, mountain community of, you know, of of showing the old ways and that sort of thing. But it's just beautiful information really told from the heart from people that do it every day Mm. um, in a very no-bones, you know, no-nonsense format. Yeah, and I just I just loved them. So we we wanted to sort of write a modern Foxfire, and um, we didn't exactly get as far as coffin building, but um yeah this is this this is our attempt to sort of books to fill. (laughs) Yeah, and to lead people into stuff that you know they didn't know that they wanted to know about,
1: and hopefully
2: you know by the time they're done with we we're done with them, they're they're all excited to try new things.
1: Yeah, no, it's a very inspiring book, and the photos just draw you in and make you wanna. Oh, that good. Life. That's the idea. <laughs> definitely. Very sensual and inviting. So, yeah. Well, thanks for having a chat, Kirsten. And, yeah, if you get your thanks, hands Robin. on a copy of the book if you can. Yeah. All right. The, well, um... well, happy tomato growing and may your season be fruitful. <laughs> Thank you. And yours too and everyone else's. Yay. Yeah. Hey. Okay. Thanks, Kirsten. Bye.
0: You have been listening to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. Kirsten and Nick's book, Milkwood, Real Skills for Down-to-Earth Living, is available now from the PIP shop at www.pipmagazine.com.au. You can also find out here about the magazine, subscribe to PIP, read our garden tips, catch up on other podcasts and so much more. Stay tuned for Issue 12 out soon.